Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We are back in action now. With me in studio is Senator Roger Marshall, Dan Senor at the bottom of the hour, former advisor to Mitt Romney, and of course, uh, he was in. Uh, Iraq over there as a spokesperson, also a best-selling author. Uh, Senator, great to see you. Ryan, it's great to be back with you. Look forward to a good show. We'll bring you to New York. You know, lots of things. I spoke to a group last night, 200 infertile couples. I'm an OBGYN, right. subspecialized in infertility, working on legislation to help some of those folks out. So you have a night job. I, I do have a night job, <laughs> exactly. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, first off, big day. Uh, this is going to be the most consequential week in the primary process, perhaps, because Senator Tim Scott says, count me in in a matter of hours. And then later this week, Ron DeSantis, and we expect Mike Pence and maybe Governor Christie. When you look at the field right now, looking at the uh, the, the Harvard-Harris poll in January, Trump 48 percent, Ron DeSantis 28, everybody else single digits. Harvard-Harris now, uh, Trump 58, DeSantis 16, Vivek Ramaswamy 4, uh, Pence and Nikki Haley 4, everybody else below. What's your reaction? Well, Brian, it's shaping up to be a fight at the OK Corral, it looks like. The more people that get into the race, the better it is for, for President Trump. Um, but it's a long time until that first primary in Iowa. And I think that the nation uh, is going to fall in love with, with Tim Scott. And when he, when he hops in the race, one of the most respected people in the Senate, one of the best communicators as well. So it's a long time. We've got a deep bench looking forward to the primary race. That's what we do. you got Senator Thune is going to introduce him today. And Senator Mike Rounds is also endorsing him. Uh, I've never seen anyone not in the race yet attack like Governor Sanders has been attacked by the Trump team. He has seemed to have figured out the Trump team seems to think is if I beat DeSantis, I don't have to worry about anybody else. Is that the right school of thought? Well, that, that's what the, the play is right now. Certainly, he he appears to be the most immediate threat. And again, this was Trump's uh, technique through the first primary. He took them on one at a time, took them down, started right. the name calling. But let's see what happens uh, with Tim Scott when he hops in the race. Right. I think that Senator Scott has $22 million to start. He's got a super PAC with $13 million to start. So I think that's pretty impressive. Now, for Ron DeSantis, he, is, uh, he has got this guy named Hal Lambert. Founder of Point Bridge, uh, Point Bridge Capital, an investment fund named Make America Great Again. So he has left the Trump camp and gone to DeSantis. DeSantis has got more donors than Trump does. But how do you explain Trump's dominance over the field so far, being all the controversy that's gotten in his way? Well, I, I'm not sure anyone can explain a Donald Trump. At no this one will point ever be able yeah, to. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. You know, he gets uh, he convicted and his ratings go go up. But it was interesting yesterday. I did my little Google search on Tim Scott. The first three articles come up: Elon Musk, Elon Musk, Elon Musk, and Tim Scott. He endorsed him, but now he endorsed his first ad to come out. Exactly. I don't think he endorsed him, but I certainly it looks like he's giving Tim a, a fair shake. All right. I want you to hear what other people are saying. This is going to be from our special. Who is Tim Scott? 
Uh, and the first one's Maurice Washington. Then you got Trey Gowdy. Then Carl Rove looks at what what Tim Scott brings to the table. Cut to here is a United States senator, perhaps maybe running for president of the United States of America, is stepping up and saying, "Look, the values that made this country great—our faith, our belief in God, family, friends." country. If no one else is willing to step up and speak to those important issues, I am. He's going to conduct himself in a way that is a credit to his faith and his followers and his family. And if that's successful, that's fantastic. And if it's not successful, then it just wasn't his time. I think he's got what it takes, but there are a lot of other people in the contest who I think have what it takes. How they handle themselves in the coming months is going to be determined. So that is true. I think this is a very talented field. I read the Washington Post the other day, and they said, well, what happened to the what happened to the talent on the Republican side? I'm thinking to myself, even people that don't want to vote for a Republican, you can't say there's no talent there. I mean, you got Mike Pence, very competent congressman, governor, vice president. You got Donald Trump's already been president. Can't say he can't do the job. He might not like it. And then you have Governor Ron DeSantis, the most successful governor in the country, arguably. Uh, Senator Tim Scott, who did the impossible, had the rebuttal to a State of the Union, actually had his ratings go up to Joe Biden's first term. Nikki Haley, an ambassador, successful governor in the South. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy, a, self, uh, a self-made multimillionaire. So, I mean, at the very at the very least, you got to respect the talent there. Yeah. You know, you know, Tim Scott beats Joe Biden by seven or nine points in a general election. I work out most every afternoon with Jim Scott, with Tim Scott in the gym, the Senate gym. And by the way, the Senate gym is worse than any YMCA you've ever worked out in. So don't get your get too big of eyes here. But he's um, he 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 is a genuine person. He knows Scripture better than any person I've ever met. His his life is grounded on that faith, raised by a single mom. He's got a great story, and and I look forward to America getting to know the Tim Scott I know. What's your plan, Senator Marshall? Do you want to just wait on the outside until the nominee, or what a lot of people do, or are you going to jump in? Well, annoying somebody. Unless Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes uh, jump in the race, I'm going to wait till the primary is over with. At least that's that's my my plan, and I look forward to the to the debate. That's what we're supposed to. This iron sharpening iron. August debates. January 8th is Iowa. And then you have New Hampshire to follow right after. Right now, front and center is a debt ceiling. And you have a situation where the president of the United States has got to cut off, uh, uh, cut off his trip. He's supposed to go to Australia and New Guinea. Everyone's like, well, what's the big deal? It is a big deal because the message to China is we don't have our act together. And we're supposed to in New Guinea. They, they gave the whole the whole island was off from school and work. They were all ready for a, to see a U.S. president, but he's got to come back and negotiate this. First off, how did we end up in this place? Right. Well, once again, Joe Biden's unable to walk and chew gum at the same time. He's a, unable to negotiate and, and have the G7. But look, all that Republicans are asking is very reasonable. In exchange for giving Joe Biden another credit card, we want some reasonable government spending. We think that people that are able to work ought to go to work. We think that you if mean you mean with the with the whole, uh, you know, if you're getting welfare. Exactly. So work requirements. And it's really pretty simple what we're asking for. If you're getting Medicaid, if you're getting uh, food stamps, then we would like for you to work 20 hours a week. If you don't have children, 20 hours a week. And if you can't find a job, let's do education instead. I think having a job is a great thing. It's It creates self-respect. It creates dignity. I think it's the right thing to do. And, and going back to Tim Scott, you know, that's his story. If you're able to work, you ought to work. So you also have repurposing pandemic funds. Right. I don't think anyone argues with that. 
He also, so he said in the past I voted for workfare, uh, also wanted to get back to 2022 spending. And what they said, 2020, uh, yeah, 2021 spending. And what they said is, uh, what about if we just hold it at this year's spending? What's wrong with holding it at this year's spending? Well, this year's spending, we're going to probably spend $600 billion on interest alone. Last year, $500 billion of interest. This year, $600 billion. Our national debt is the number one threat to our national security. It's the number one threat to our economy. It's the number one threat to building roads and bridges. We need reasonable spending. Above all else, we need to get back to reasonable spending. Already you got the president off his pledge that he will not. He'll want a clear clear debt ceiling, clean debt ceiling, and that's it. And already he's... Come back off that because he's negotiating with you. And that's what has happened before. As Senator Langford pointed out to me, which I forgot, wasn't even brought up this weekend. Donald Trump had to give in to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on holding off on taxes on Obamacare because it was politically unpopular. And number two, they had to increase all types of spending for him to increase the debt because he lost the House and he lost the Senate at the time. That's what you do if you don't have power. But if with Democrats, they want you to spend more. The Republicans, they want you to cut more. Exactly. I believe eight out of the last 10 10 times raising the debt ceiling was coupled with some type of spending deal between the two parties. That's what history. What happened to the old Joe Biden, the old Joe Biden who wanted some type of reasonable spending, who wanted some type of work requirements? Joe Biden needs to get away from that far left socialist liberal greenies that are running his life right now and get in the room with Kevin McCarthy. Only he, only Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy can solve this riddle. Kevin McCarthy thinks that Senator Sanders got to him because they had a different tone once he went overseas in the negotiations. I think it happened on Sunday. So President Biden wanted to take his few scripted questions and then got one off script as he looked in search for a pen, I think. Peter Ducey got this question off. Cut eight. Would you be blameless in a default situation? On the merits, based on what I've offered, I would be blameless. On the politics of it, no one will be blameless. I think there are some MAGA Republicans in the House who know the damage that it would do to the economy. And because I am president and presidents are responsible for everything. So kind of being uh, honest about that, I wouldn't be blameless because, because I'm the president, but I'm blameless because we're at this point. Well, first of all, let's stop and just think about Joe Biden's name-calling. His name-calling, calling us MAGA Republicans. Does that bother you? It, it doesn't bother me, but I don't like name-calling in general. I'm just telling you, you know, it was raised that so that's you don't, you don't love uh, President Trump's nicknames either? I, I don't think name-calling is a good idea. It really upsets my parents, and if you upset my parents, you're, you're upsetting the base of my, right. my party as well. But look, at, at the end of the day, if we default on our debt— the history books are going to say Joe Biden was the president when we defaulted on our debt. He's going to be a, a one-term president and a one-paragraph president in the history books. The history books are going to say that Joe Biden co- uh, created the highest inflation in recent memory. He was responsible for the Afghanistan uh, debacle. debacle evacuation. Um, he was responsible for the open border, and he was responsible for the first time in, a her- in history that America defaulted on, on our debt. That's why he's a one-paragraph, a, a one-term president. Uh, when we come back, Senator Marshall, I'm going to ask you about a column, an editorial in the Washington Post that's got to really upset the Biden camp and worry them. I also want to uh, get your take on what's happened with Ukraine. And there was a blockbuster story on 60 Minutes last night. And believe it or not, it is about how our, our, the defense uh, contractors are gouging this country and the Pentagon. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. 
Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. We have to have a financially healthy defense industrial base. We all want that. But what we don't want to do is get taken advantage of and hoodwinked. And the U.S. has nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to go. For many of these weapons that are being sent over to Ukraine right now, there's only one supplier. And the companies know it. So... This was a huge story. I thought in 60 Minutes, they studied the Defense Department for for six months. And with uh, Senator Roger Marshall here, uh, Kansas. So, Senator, uh, they studied for six months. It turns out in the 90s, it was a consolidation of weapons manufacturers. And they thought this would be better and more concise. And it turns out they said, okay, we're the only game in town. It looks like everything's going to go a little bit more expensive, as much as 40% everything. So you want a plane, you want a tank, you want a ship, you want a submarine, everything more expensive. And it takes longer to do. And what's going to happen if they miss a deadline? No big deal. Maybe I'll charge you for the new price of these goods as opposed to the ones we signed off on. And instead of these manufacturers doing their patriotic duty and maybe make a profit, great. But instead, they're gouging. I'm just I'm offended by this whole prospect. Brian, I'm with you on this. I think you're over the target. My job as a senator is to use uh, taxpayers' money efficiently. I want money to be spent on the military and making sure we're a secure country. But I think there's a lot of waste. It's not unique to the Department of, of Defense. Uh, this this story of consolidation of industries is happening across the nation, whether it's pharmacy benefit managers uh, or credit card companies, that this consolidation is bad without competition. Well, banks are heading, right? Yeah, there's consolidations in the banking industry uh, with, without competition capitalism doesn't work and i think that's where so when you want to increase the defense budget i said yeah but there's got to be a massive audit of the defense budget and there's got to be is there a way to start decoupling these companies not breaking them up but but incentivizing them to break up into divisions and create some competition again right brian and remember this their model is a cost plus system i built a house what do you mean by that that um, whatever their cost is, they just add a percentage to it. So they get a contract to build a new Navy ship, and then the Navy comes in and says, well, we need to add this, and we need to add that. And they say, we're very happy to make those additions. And here's what the cost is, and, they, and then they factor in a, a plus, a cost plus. Whether it's 10 or 20%, I don't know. But I think that's where they really start dinging the American taxpayers is on these change orders. All right. I just want you to hear uh, a little bit more. Cut 39. This, Bill, is an oil pressure switch that NASA used to buy. Well, their oil switch, all of the cabling, cost $328. This oil switch, we paid over $10,000 for it. So what accounts for that huge difference? Gouging. What what else can account for it? So, and they got rid of almost all the oversight on this, so there's no more oversight within the Pentagon. Not saying they cut the budget, but they said less regulation, which in theory is great. But in this case, it's not great. Right. Again, this to me, this is a lack of competition. I think certainly we, we need more inspector generals. We need the, doing our job. But how can we fix this with more competition? You know, I know in Wichita, Kansas, they're doing 3D printing of every part from all these airplanes and, and old jets and stuff. And then they're able to send that 3D print to a local company, and then they can make that part. I think that's what we need to do. How do we inject more competition, Brian? Uh, absolutely. So I, I hope people take a look at this. Uh, when 60 Minutes does it, They know it's not a right or left wing thing, although they tend to lean left these days. 
So what's going on in the Ukraine right now? We saw they lost Bakhmu, but we see the major offensive being primed up for this spring or summer. Robert Gates was asked how the president's uh, dealing with this Ukraine effort, because, you know, he famously said he's been wrong on every foreign policy decision over the last 40 years. Uh, cut 22. Do you believe Ukraine is core to U.S. national security? Absolutely, because if we have these NATO obligations. If, if Vladimir Putin wins in Ukraine, there's no doubt in my mind <clears throat> that Moldova is next, mm-hmm. that Belarus will be incorporated into the original Russian empire, which is what Putin's trying to recreate. And it creates great danger to the Baltic states and to Poland, where we have treaty alliances that would require American forces. So do you see the bigger picture there? I think there's a much bigger picture here than that, Brian. So I'm a physician. I'm not going to look at silos. When I think about national security issues, the most immediate largest threat to America's national security is an open southern border and the cartel. Probably number two would be Chinese cyber security issues, cyber attacks from foreign countries. And Ukraine's a piece of the puzzle. Um, but but at the end of the day, uh, we never have maximized our our, our banking sanctions. We have not ma- European Union has not maximized their help as well. Joe Biden always a day late, a dollar short, always reactive. It's going to take months for these F-16s to actually be in the fight. How about this? We got to train them for a year. There was no high Mars, then there were high Mars. There were no tanks. Now you're going to get tanks. So there was now there's uh, attackums. No. So the UK stepped in and gave it to us. They have lost 42,000 civilians, all because of Russia. I get it. But if we're going to go in, why are we gradually giving them weapon systems like the Patriot missile? Not going to do it. Patriot missile shield. Not going to do it. Now they got it. Can you imagine if we just gave them what they needed right away? And that's why I said give them the damn weapons back on, on week one, week two. And even months before, I was saying let's send them A-10s. We were mothballing A-10s. And I said – Warthogs. Warthog. A-10 war- They would have – could you imagine the power that they Tank could have, they could have given uh, the Ukrainians? And we're mothballing them. So I was calling for those months before Russia actually invaded. This president always – not a day late. He's a year late. So that's the problem because Republicans are, are are one by one seem to be jumping off the bandwagon because of the amount of money it's costing and how we're depleting our weapons, our own weapons. But the longer you delay on all this, it makes it harder for the American people to digest and you guys to, to uh, I guess, qualify. It smells like Vietnam, doesn't it? We're, we're in there with weapons. Next, we're going to be sending advisors, but they're not sending my son. Right. I don't want them to send my son, who is a, a private in the Army right now. So he is. Yes, sir. Wow. Uh, Senator Roger Marshall, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always great to see you in studio. Thanks, Brian. Dan Senor next. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. To me, it's not really about Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis. It's about what America needs. And that's where I've been really since day one. We, I talked a little bit about foreign policy in the last block. Mm-hmm. We have a situation right now where Russia is on the move and China is on the move. We need somebody who can step in day one, look at Vladimir Putin, look at Xi Jinping and say, okay, enough. I'm back. We're going to get everything in order the way it was I don't think DeSantis has that ability. 
I think it's going to take them time. I think there's only one person who has that ability right now, and it's Donald Trump. And for all the naysayers who would say, oh, he's unpredictable, oh, we don't know what he's going to do, let's be very clear. When he was president of the United States, the world was in a much safer place. Nobody can say that the world is safer now than when it was when he was president. So Byron Donald's getting involved, even though he introduced uh, DeSantis after he won his resounding victory as governor, he is going to pick uh, Donald Trump. But today, Tim Scott's going to get two endorsements from uh, Senator Thune, as well as Senator Mike Rounds, and he's going to launch today, Thursday, DeSantis is in. But most importantly, Dan Senor is back in studio. Uh, his, he's the host of the podcast, Call Me Back. Uh, he's the author of Startup Nation, the story of Israel's economic miracle, and a former advisor to Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. Dan, great to see you again. Good to be with you, Brian. Right in studio, right at the right at the, uh, the tone oh, as you we know, come I'm, back. I got an impeccable sense of timing, rolling in just as you're going to sound. Byron Donald's as talented as anybody out there. Yeah. Man, was he strong yesterday and meet the press as usual. Uh, your reaction to what he, how he characterizes Donald Trump? Uh, look, I, I think if he wants to argue that there were important foreign policy accomplishments during the Trump administration, which I think he was uh, alluding That's to, saying, yeah, yeah I, I think he's right. I mean, you look at the the realignment of our relationship with China, that entire strategy really began uh, under the Trump administration. Obviously, the Abraham Accord, something I care a lot about, something I worked on behind the scenes. What about moving helpful, the embassy? Moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, allowing for formal recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights in the north of Israel. But the, but the Abraham Accords, to me, were truly transform, transformational because I've got to tell you, I've been involved with uh, the Middle East and Israeli-Arab issues for decades, and I really had a hard time believing in my lifetime that we'd ever see so much of the Arab world normalizing relations with Israel. And that also happened uh, under the Trump administration. So there's plenty of accomplishments in the Trump administration – that are worthy of of celebrating as it relates to foreign policy, whether or not the Republicans should nominate Donald Trump to serve another term is an entirely separate subject. And uh, and I, I, I think we can praise the accomplishments of the administration of the past administration. They were extraordinary. That doesn't necessarily mean Republicans and they don't appear to be lining up behind Donald Trump right now. Have you ever seen a challenger attack like this before he got in? Ron DeSantis has been attacked by the Trump and there's another devastating ad saying, and and I think it's unfair using the name, fair tax. He's for fair tax. A lot of Republicans are for fair tax. Steve Forbes famously, I think he had the uh, the flat tax. Flat, the flat tax. tax. Yeah, when he but ran in yeah, uh, everyone pays twenty four percent. Stop right, with all the right, loopholes. Just right. pay twenty four percent. Right. But this ad makes it seem like it says pay your taxes and then pay another twenty four percent. Right. Right. The whole idea behind Forbes' fair uh, flat tax, which Dick Armey had originated in the House, was just you know your your pay your income taxes, all your taxes on one on basically the size of a postcard, and make it very simple. Look, um, Republican uh, analysts and pundits have been saying that the 2024 Republican primary is going to look like and feel like resemble the 2016 Republican primary where you have Trump and everybody else. But there was 17 then. Exactly. I don't buy it. I don't think and, and the concern among many who are worried about Trump getting renominated is it would be Trump because the Republican prime most of the early Repu- in, in mid calendar Republican primary states are winner take all. So right. it doesn't matter what percentage of the vote you get in those primaries. Yeah. If you win the most, no one gets a trophy prize, right? Like the, the way the Democratic primaries have where people, oh, you came in third, you still get a few delegates. Many of those early Republican primaries, it's winner take all. And the concern was that Trump could start winning all. 
Right, by, by getting 30 to 40 percent of the vote, because if you have a crowded Republican field, they're slicing up the rest of the field, and then uh, Trump could win with 30 40 percent. I don't think that's going to happen for two reasons. One, I don't think this feels like 2016 to me in the Republican primary. It feels more like the 2008 Democratic primary, uh, which is where you had two big candidates and everybody else. You had Hillary and Obama. This feels more to me like that. Right now, it feels like you have Trump and DeSantis and then everyone else. Now, everyone else can emerge. You know, that's not to say that someone can't break through. But right now, it really is a two-man race, whether you like Trump or DeSantis or you don't. The reality is if you just look at the polling, it's a two-person race. This summer, there's a big debate, Republican debate, August. In the summer of 2015, we forget, in the summer of 2015, which is like the equivalent time period before the uh, election then, there was a Republican primary debate. 27 million people tuned into that debate. So if you think there's going to be a comparable number turning out this time, you're going to have a lot of people getting a first look at candidates they've never heard of or paid attention to. So it's, so someone could have a breakout moment and break through. But right now it feels to me like a two-person race. Right. Um, I think Tim Scott's got a legitimate chance and, and Nikki Haley's making a lot of ground early. How quick do things change if you do well in Iowa? And oh. then how quickly do things change if you if you take New Hampshire? All of a sudden, the national polls from May don't yeah. mean as much. Yeah, absolutely. How about nothing? Absolutely. So – there, there's no there's no doubt if just if history is your precedent, whoever is going to be the Republican nominee has to win Iowa or New Hampshire or both. And and the corollary uh, to that is that no Republican is going to be the nominee if they lose both Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, DeSantis's theory of the case is that he could be he's got a a, a very direct conduit to the cultural conservatives who turn out in the Iowa caucuses. He's a lot of what he's done. In he's Florida, gotten heavy with culture. Right. A lot of what he's done in Florida resonates with them. And he believes he's going to be very competitive in Iowa. I recently on my podcast, I had Mike Murphy on who spent a lot of time in Iowa, worked on Terry Brandstad's campaigns for governor. Uh, he uh, he has a piece out that I that uh, that we posted on my podcast uh, where he just was just in Iowa and he's talking to a lot of the major guys, major leaders in the Iowa Republican scene who were for Trump in 2016. And they're shopping. They're looking around. Some of them are saying we're out. Some of them are saying we're on the fence. So DeSantis's theory is he could drive a freight train through that opening. And if he can win Iowa, then Trump has to win New Hampshire, because if Trump loses Iowa and New Hampshire, I just don't see how he, he stumbles right, out of there. Right, he did not win Iowa in 2015. Right. He did right. not. Uh, Ted, Ted Cruz won Iowa in 2015, and right. uh, and then Trump won And in then New he Hampshire. won New Hampshire, Hampshire. and right. then had all success in the South. Now, so, there's an exception to all of this, which is Biden lost in, 20, in 2020. Yeah, he lost Iowa and New Hampshire. Didn't even show up in New Hampshire. Didn't yeah. stay for the results. But the difference was the Democratic counting process in the Iowa caucuses are, is a really messed up process. They so, still haven't figured it out. So Pete Buttigieg won, but he didn't get declared the winner for about five days, so he didn't get the bump out of it. So he effectively didn't win Iowa. So by the t- so it was like no one really won Iowa. Biden didn't win New Hampshire. And then obviously Obama then helped clear the field and get everyone consolidated into South Carolina. So, yeah. And by the way, just to the Harvard-Harris poll, uh, Trump had 48 percent of the vote in January. Now he's got 58 percent. DeSantis went from 28 percent to 16 percent. Vivek Ramaswamy's got 4 percent. So he's tied with Pence, Nikki Haley. Um, at that at that level. And then Ted Cruz is still at three percent. So you got everybody else in, in low single digits. But can you do it retail? Being that Iowa is big, but it's small with people that are heavily populated. 
you you talk to Nikki Haley, she's like, I think I've met everybody. I'm yeah. getting good crowds in my yeah. town halls. Do you think you can grind it out and blue collar it to a victory there? I think in places like Iowa, New Hampshire, you have to. I mean, I think a big part of performance in those states is your ability to do retail politics. I think Nikki Haley happens to be excellent at retail politics. And got a great resume. Great resume and just very good with people. So I think states like Iowa and New Hampshire where personal touch and getting to know people and developing a rapport with people is extremely important. I think Nikki Haley and Tim Scott for that matter. I also think Tim Scott has extraordinary uh, retail political skills. So when you look at what's going on right now, uh, a lot of people – I think this – I think Donald Trump's got his best team between 2016, 2020. 2020 was a mess. Yeah. Got rid of everybody. Like Jared Kushner was running, but not really. Yeah. Kellyanne Conway just said, I, I quit. No one's listening <laughs> to me. Uh, and, and then we had Brad Parscale, who was such a digital genius, just implode, yeah. shirtless, yeah. being arrested for maybe or having some type of domestic dispute. And then the pandemic hits on top of that. Yeah. And then you have the forces consolidate around Joe Biden. And then you find out with Joe Biden, you find out about the laptop being totally suppressed. Nothing really went the president's way, and he still got 72 million jo- uh, uh, votes. Brian, not well, only did he get 72 million votes in the uh, nationally, but he just came within a hair of winning the Electoral College. I mean, if you look at how Trump w- w- barely won the Electoral College in 2016, Biden was was basically – a version of that. I mean, it was like both of them in 2016 and 2020, respectively, basically picked the lock, like a very complicated lock to get to the Electoral College. So even I mean, a once in a generation pandemic, just stop for a moment. Right. A once in a generation pandemic. Generation once, and a half. Yeah. Generation yeah. and a half. And 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 the country is in total lockdown. The economy is in free fall. He can't campaign. And Trump almost wins. Right. I and mean, he, and the, on the debate, he had covid. Yeah. So exactly. and then we had that famous moment. And I don't know how uh, Dan, I didn't chance you before. If you've been following the whole laptop. Yeah, and, I've been following it. Yeah. Yes, OK. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So to people in mind, when Joe Biden has that moment. Yeah. And when he goes in Russia, it it's turns Russia. out, what are you guys doing with it? The laptop is we talked to 51 Intel experts yeah. and they say this is classic Russian disinformation. He looks at the camera and said that moment over. He scores. And then we find out the forensics below it. He knew he was lying because he knew it was his son's laptop. Number two is Mike Burrell said, I want to give – he was a former CIA director. Yeah, yeah, I know Mike. I want to give uh, a talking point to Joe Biden and one and got 51 intel experts and four CIA heads who hadn't even looked at the laptop, just signed on because they didn't like Donald Trump. Yeah. No, I no, mean, no. think about that. I, I, trust me. I, I think we – Independence undecided. Yeah, the, the, the whole laptop story, not just um, how – so many former officials, you know, Michael um, Hayden, who um, you know, yeah, yeah. So many officials kind of got together and said, "We're going to help the Biden campaign with this," which was the role they played was really, um, really worrisome and a little unnerving. But also the media's blackout of it, unbelievable. That that also was like they 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 were told by the kind of unofficial intel community that this was a Russia disinformation campaign, and they just ran with it hook, line, and sinker. I, I mean that. Talk about dereliction of duty. I mean, how are they going to write about that? Can you imagine, for example, on a much lighter note, Donald uh, George W. Bush is en route to winning against Al Gore, and that story comes out of his DWI. Yeah. Can you imagine if everybody said it's not true? Right. And George Bush wins, and then a little bit later, he goes, excuse me, that was, that was true. Yeah, it was right. true. Really? Right. It right. was true? 
Okay, because that would have been the 2% vote that forced this overtime, almost gave Al Gore the victory. Right. We never thought that was possible. Right. So now they game planned against the October surprise, but the October surprise was real. We didn't, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, CBS didn't right. admit it until months later. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it was a, to- it was, it was a news blackout. And, um, and, and even now, they're sort of begrudgingly acknowledging it but i like underscore begrudgingly like they're even even now they're not saying wow we right. were we made a massive journalistic error here so i want to touch you on you with ukraine and china and what uh, bob gates said yesterday who you know uh, so former secretary of defense and cia director uh, about where we're at right now and where that uh, conflict is at and there's a lot of republicans a lot of conservatives who want no part of helping out ukraine they yeah. want to stop writing the checks uh maybe you're one of them we'll find out when we come back brian kill Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. My problem is that that they have been, I think, uh, slow in approving um, the various kinds of weapon systems going uh, to the Ukrainians. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a debate for a long time. Do we send tanks? Well, finally we sent tanks. Do we send things like the HIMARS and other kinds of uh, capabilities? And we finally did it, but only after months and months of indecision. And that's what Bob Gates, who does not back off a statement that Joe Biden's been wrong about every major foreign policy decision over the last 40 years. Dan Sinor, our guest. Dan, that's the whole thing. I've never seen anything like it. Right decision to back up, uh, to, to back up Ukraine. But we keep incrementally giving them what they need. Yeah. Well, and, the, it, and still, the tanks aren't there yet. The Marines gave up their tanks. Where are those tanks? Right. And even sending jets indirectly is, while it's great, the lead time on it because you've got to train yeah. the Ukrainian troops uh, and the Ukrainian pilots on how to use this equipment. So so getting See, the equipment is not it's, – it's not just important to get the equipment. Then you've got to train them. So, look, I – I think the Biden administration – Patriot missile is another one. Don't right. give it to him. Give it to him. Right. I think the Biden administration had the right instincts to back Ukraine uh, from the beginning of this conflict. Unfortunately, their fears about escalation and the perception of the U.S. contributing to escalation has Frozen led them. to exactly what, what you're describing, which is delayed – you either – look, the Russians know the game. Putin knows the game. They know the United States is backing Ukraine. So – we, we don't score any points by by Putin knowing we're backing Ukraine, but not giving Ukraine the resources to defend their country. If, if in other words, that's the escalation has been made. Yeah. So now, I mean, so I, I think it's been an enormous uh, folly to and it's made the war worse and it's led to more disaster, disastrous results and ultimately more bloodshed by not getting the Ukrainians the resources they 50,000 dead Russians, 200,000 casualties, 42,000 dead civilian Ukrainians because the yeah. Russians, like cowards, are trying to kill civilians because yeah. they can't kill the army in my opinion. But I'm disappointed, number one, India. Right. We're letting India take advantage of the West evacuation of Russia. And number two, where's Israel? Yeah. Israel should be should understand what it's like to be yeah. invaded. Yeah, yeah. So let's take each of those. Uh, first of all, for for as much as we've declared that this um, that this conflict has kind of defined the divided the world into two sides, it hasn't. There's many. There's Western Europe. There's Europe, 
and the United States and Canada and you know a few other countries that are on the side of Ukraine. But most of the country, most of the world has remained neutral. And you cite India. Where's Brazil? And we could start going through some of these massive Brazil, countries. Because we just helped a communist get elected right. who worship. Uh, <laughs> so Bolsonaro's now out and in comes yeah. this guy Lula who – who worships Fidel Castro and and loves the communists? So so the the uh, I'm very worried about uh, about where most of the world is. A friend of mine, Jared Cohn, who's at Goldman Sachs, he runs uh, the, uh, the global affairs at Goldman Sachs, just has a paper out now, basically about talking about how many countries in the world today are what he calls the equivalent of swing states. Swing states like India, they can go either way. Sometimes they'll swing towards the U.S. Sometimes they'll swing towards China, Russia. They're they're totally in play, and that's worrisome. And that speaks to, you know, America's presence and leadership in the world. That more countries don't feel. Look at look at what just happened between uh, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and China. China brokered a diplomatic rapprochement between Riyadh and Tehran. And where was the U.S. absent? Well, yeah. It took China. It took Beijing to do well, it. We would never broker something because we we think Iran is the most right. evil nation on earth. Are we being pulled here? Yeah, you hear the music is going to eventually get. Oh, I, was, I was just going to. All right, I'm just going to say 30 seconds on Israel. Israel's in a particularly sensitive situation because of Russia presence in in Syria. Now, Israel's now increasingly getting behind Ukraine, but in early days, it was a tricky situation for them because Russia right. is basically on their border. Right. Uh, I understand. It's got to be yeah. somewhat practical, but they yeah. could help a little bit more. Yeah, they are. They are now. They are now. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We're back in action from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world, where I found out we've had 72,000 illegal aliens come through, and we still got about 40-plus here and nowhere to put them. I found that out because I watched Face the Nation with Mayor Adams, who's now got a 36% approval rating. Bottom of the hour, uh, country music star Colton Dixon. But now we're going to have somebody with not a great singing voice, but a very learned man, uh, Josh Rogan uh, for The Washington Post. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There's kind of a competition on the Hill to see who can be tougher on China. But I think by and large, there is very broad bipartisan support for what the U.S. is doing for Ukrainians. And I think it's all also uh, in terms of China. So let's get some results. China, Russia, Ukraine, three nations on top of mind at the G7. The impact of the conference, the overreaction from our enemies, and what Zelensky's dramatic appearance means for Ukraine's fortunes. Number two. Would you be blameless in a default situation? On the merits, based on what I've offered, I would be blameless. On the politics of it, no one will be blameless. Debt ceiling deadline looms. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy are going to meet sometime today. Why I believe Joe already lost and why our nation could gain. Number one. I have not spoken to a, a single Senate colleague that's not excited and or at least helpful in encouraging me to go forward with my message. We do need more positivity in the conversation that we do need an optimistic messenger. Yep, there you go. Senator Tim Scott's going to get in a couple of hours. It's all but done a done deal. Biggest week yet for the GOP presidential push. Also, Ron DeSantis at the end of the week, what the polls say their chances are, are, are and why is everyone, especially Trump, attacking one man, and that's Ron DeSantis. With me right now is Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Fire, 
uh, Trump Xi in the battle for the 21st century, which, I, by the way, I hope we win. Josh, welcome back. Thanks, Brian. How do you know I don't have a great singing voice? I, what do you think, Allison? Do you think he has a great singing voice? In my head, it sounds great. People around me don't agree. No one agrees. All right, so <laughs> I, I was wrong. I should Thank say you. assume to not have a great singing voice. I got a correction out of you. Thank you. Thank you. That's all you asked for. So, Josh, I, I was surprised. You, you really alerted me to the fact. I thought, well, the president's going to cut, uh, cut short his visit to Australia and New Guinea. I guess, you know, he'll make that up. And you say, wait a second. What a mistake this is. Tell everyone at home by cutting off the G7, leaving, not only with the debt ceiling looming over the whole conference, but leaving what happened. Well, how did we get hurt? Right. Well, we constantly have this thing called the pivot to Asia. It started with Bill Clinton and then George W. Bush and then Obama and then Trump and now Biden. But every time it's time for the president to go to Asia, somehow it all gets screwed up. And this has been going on for 20 years, Brian. We plan these trips. You know, they say 80 percent of success in life is just showing up. Well, this is the bare minimum that you could really do to prove to these countries that we care, that we give a crap about them. And it's not just Biden. I mean, again, this is both parties. We've been doing this for 20 years. Something always comes up. It could be a a healthcare bill. It could be a government shutdown. In this case, it's the debt ceiling. And as soon as the political people in the White House are like, oh, wait, something domestic is happening, they just scratch it. And these countries are left with all this planning, all of it. You know, they brought people from all over the world to come meet with the president of the United States. He was supposed to go to Australia to have a meeting of the Quad, which is like our supposed to be our alliance to contain China. Now, they had the meeting in Tokyo, but it's not the same. Then he was supposed to go to the Papua New Guinea. OK, Brian, I went to Papua New Guinea okay, with Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence in 2018. I was there. We were there for a big meeting. Trump didn't want to go. Fine. At least Pence went. Right. And he did a good job. But here's the thing. Xi Jinping showed up a week in advance, okay, and he stayed a week later, okay. That's what the Chinese are doing. And when he was there, he opened up the new highway in in Port Moresby, the capital, which he built for them for free. It led to the parliament building in the, you know, the the PNG parliament. They they built that for them for free. This is what China's doing, okay. Now, people will say, oh, Josh, he had to be back. He had to be back. Did he, though? Brian, honestly, between us, did he? You know, is there – he's back today. What's he going to do? He's going to have one meeting? He could have done that over the phone. They don't have any communications equipment on Air Force One that could have facilitated. Is he really doing the negotiations, Brian? Is he really in there getting, you know, looking at the pluses and minuses? No. You know, there's nothing that he could have. He just came back for the optics. He just came back to be, oh, I'm here and I'm in charge. But there's a real cost to that. At least that's what I argue. Well, put it this way. what to Describe where it is and why it would affect China. New Guinea. So, Papa, so you know, the the – World War II was arguably decided based on a, a, a battle, naval battle that happened in Papua New Guinea. It's a strategically crucial little island in the middle of the Pacific off the coast of Australia, crucial to the, to the defense of Australia, right near all the things that we pretend to care about, huge energy uh, resources. And, uh, you know, they don't ask for much. You know, they're not asking for $100 billion. They, they just like the president to show up when he says he's going to show up for the first time. Ever. You know what I mean? And Australia, that's another one. Here you have this country, Australia. They took a big step, to, you know, to join with the United States. You know, they did that AUKUS deal with the, with the Brits, with the submarines, and took a big step. And this really pissed off the Chinese. Okay, fine, the Chinese are going to get pissed off. But then 
what do we do? We snub them, you know? So all the people inside of Australia who were, who were arguing when they took this big step, United States is not going to be there. They're unreliable. They never show up when they say they're going to show up. Now we just gave those people inside these countries a bunch of talking points. And, you know, if you listen to what the president said when he got to Tokyo, he said, we're here to show you that the United States is a reliable partner. And that's completely undercuts that message. Again, for what? So that he could, you know sign a piece of paper, you know, in four days from now. It doesn't, you know, the other thing that, that I think is crazy about this town, Washington, that I lived in for so long, Brian, is that this whole debt ceiling thing, it's like, it's it's kabuki, right? Everybody knows there's going to be a deal. It's not like we, you know, we, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and then somehow in the last minute, they sign something. That's why they're negotiating. They wouldn't be negotiating if they weren't going to get a deal. That Everybody knows it. The markets know it. Everybody knows it. So this whole idea that, oh, if he didn't rush home and you know, piss off all these countries and undermine our strategy vis-a-vis China, there, we would have well, had some sort of default. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. I'll, I'll give you another scenario. How about this? Joe Biden was given a lot of, as did Mike Pence, by the way, a lot of responsibility as vice president. And one of it was the debt ceiling deal in 2011. So I'm thinking to myself, if you're trying to sell Kamala Harris, which they told the whole world about two weeks ago, they're going to start selling Kamala Harris. Look at how competent she is. Out come the floor, the, these beautiful... Uh, profiles of Kamala Harris. So this would have been a perfect time to say she'll be in charge of negotiations while I'm away and I'll be dipping into them, but she's going to be leading them. Why not use that as an example? Instead, she's going to watch Brittany Griner play basketball. Yeah, I think that's or send her to Papua New Guinea. How about yes. that? You know what I mean? Put her on a plane. They got another plane, right? So just put her there. You know, that would be something that would be, show them that we care. I don't know why they don't use her. To be honest, Brian, I've met Kamala Harris a bunch of times. I think she's competent. You know, she's not really great in front of the cameras, but she's she could do that. She can go to Papua New Guinea and sign the deals, and, you know, at least they would think we cared a little bit. But, yeah, no, it's it's crazy. I mean, the whole debt ceiling thing is just a bunch of politics. It's just a bunch of, like, oh, we got something done. Oh, we stood up to the other guy. And that's the other thing. Like, a lot of people in my, uh, in my social media are like, oh, well, it's the GOP's fault that Biden had to cancel – because he didn't, you know, they, they pushed our country to the brink and forced them to come home. No, that's all play acting. That's all predictable and predicted, by the way. We all knew, we knew what the deadline was for months. It's not – so why do they cancel at the last minute? If all of this is sort of like, again, sort of just like Washington going through its like motions of like everybody threatens each other. Then they cut some sort of deal. Everybody claims victory and attacks the other guy. Fine. But now that's having a real cost on our foreign policy and, you know – this is not the right time to hand easy wins to China. It's not a good idea. I want you to hear what Bob Gates said, just to build on your point on Face the Nation yesterday about what's going on with the debt ceiling, how it helps China. Cut 16. I think it's a real problem. Um, it, it feeds the narrative from China in particular <clears throat> that our system doesn't work, uh, that it's broken, it's paralyzed, it can't get things done, um, that, that their model is more stable and and actually more effective than right ours. except for the people that live under it but that does help right. sell it right and all the people in the region brian i mean their model is more stable i mean you know <laughs> there's a reason that like japan hosting the g7 wanted to make it all about china right it ended up being all about ukraine because you know Zelensky flew in fine but the, the the people in the region are saying this is not a stable situation that china's rise and expansion is far from stable okay the people in hong kong don't think the chinese rule rules it's been taiwan they're, they're not counting on stability. 
Okay. So yeah, of course that's the Chinese propaganda, but I'm not saying that everything's related to China. We can get into this kind of like feedback loop where we're like, oh, well, we shouldn't do this because China's going to like it. We shouldn't do that because China's like it. So we don't have to make the debt ceiling about China. All I'm saying is let's make the, the Asia trip about China. How, that's really actually about China. You know, that's the only thing. <laughs> Let's make the trip around China, right near China, about the China. The one that they said is about China. Let's make that one about China. You know, so I think, again, like, again, both parties can do this. Oh, we've got to do this on the debt ceiling. Otherwise, China will win. No, no, no. That, let's let's stop that nonsense, okay? So uh, The debt ceiling is about the debt ceiling. Asia is about Asia. So they, they already called the ambassador, the Japanese ambassador to China in to uh, declare how unhappy they were, calling the G7 an anti-China workshop. Uh, China's embassy in Britain urged London to stop slandering China. China's reaction this time is quite uh, intense, according to a professor at City University of Hong Kong. So why is China getting so upset? Why is it their play? Are they legitimately are they legitimately that concerned? You know, the, the Xi Jinping has has sponsored this thing that they call wolf warrior diplomacy. What it boils down to, Brian, is that uh, they're not interested in uh, discussing any of these problems that we have with them. If you looked at the G7 statement, it was actually pretty measured. I just read it just to prepare for this interview, and it's not that bad. You know what I mean? It says we want to work with China. We'd appreciate it if they didn't you know, take over the South China Sea after telling us that they wouldn't. We'd appreciate it if they didn't you know, st- use unfair trade practices and economic aggression, but we want to try to work it out. That's what the statement said. Now, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party, as you rightly point out, like massively overreacted to that sort of tells you all you need to know about what's going on in China. Again, it's not always about us. We think we're we're so solipsistic. We're so like narcissistic in Washington. We're like, if we just are nicer to China, they're going to be nicer to us. Well, no, <laughs> that's not actually the truth. The truth is that they are feeling their oats. They, you know, they think they're powerful enough to go tell all of us to go score ourselves. They're also in a charm offensive on, in Europe. Their goal is to split the Europe, Europe from the United States. That's why they sent that envoy to Kiev to meet with Zelensky. Oh, we're going to be peacemakers. But it was hard for the Europeans not to notice that the, when the envoy left, the Russians bombed Kiev. They sent a bunch of missiles to Kiev. So the message really wasn't peace. It was like, you know, deal with us or die, which is not really a charm offensive. Right. So. You know, I, you know, yeah, they're really pissed off. But guess what? That's not our fault. That's their fault for doing the bad actions that we have the audacity to point out. And, and, and what about the fact that the president tried to soft pedal the whole China balloon two freight trains full of surveillance equipment? They went over every military base in our country, traversed the whole country, only shot it down in South Carolina. We're the ones who should be offended. Yeah. Where's the FBI report, Brian? Where's I mean, yeah. the FBI did a report. They're supposed to release it in April. Where is it? What happened to it? Well, if you believe the Reuters reporting, and I do, uh, the State Department buried it because they want to get uh, back to Beijing, you know, and that's exactly what the Chinese want. They want us to stop criticizing all of their genocide and all of their military aggression, menacing of Taiwan and spying uh, in order so that we can make nice. Right. This is like the old fetishization of engagement. It's just like if you still read half the newspapers in Washington, they'll be like, oh, it's so great that we're engaging. Oh, yeah, we got to avoid the Cold War and we got to you know, stop World War Three. But once you make engagement the thing that your strategy is pointed at, well, the Chinese know that playbook. And they're like, OK, great. We'll just not engage with you until you come begging, which is exactly what's happening. Right. It's uh, like Lucy in the football. That's what we're dealing with. The, so you, you wrote it to the other column. The survivors of Vladimir Putin's atrocities have a warning for us. And you talk about what they've done to uh, Mariupol, the survivors there, and the families around there. 
So how brutal is this war? 42,000 civilians minimum have died. Ukrainians have died. And the Russians have paid a heavy price, but they don't care, it seems. 50,000 dead, 200,000 casualties. What is the message that Vladimir Putin is trying to relay through the victims of these atrocities? Right. No, thanks for bringing that up, Ryan. I, I, you know, these, uh, the, the battle of Mariupol was one of the first battles of the war last February, and it was big news then. There was a steel plant, and they were attacking the steel plant for two months, and then they finally had to all surrender. People forgot about it. Anyway, a couple of these people came to Washington, and I interviewed them, including a 24-year-old woman who had a three-month-old baby trapped in a steel plant for 65 days, getting shelled every day. Then she gets sent to a filtration camp, a Russian filtration camp, which is horrendous. Then now she's a refugee. She hasn't seen her husband in 11 months. No idea if he's dead or alive. And she came all the way to Washington. I figured, oh, well, let's hear what she has to say. And what she said was, listen, you might be getting tired of this whole Ukraine war, but imagine what my husband thinks because he's in captivity for 11 months. He's tired. Okay. And her second message was, listen, you may want to cede parts of Ukraine to Putin, like in some sort of like meeting in Washington. You decide that, okay, he gets to keep this and that. He's like, she's like, that's not going to work. Because the people who are living in those parts of you are living in hell. They're living in a horrible, dystopian, cruel, murderous nightmare. You know, kids are getting killed all around them. So it's, it, that's not going to work. Okay, So that means Ukrainians are not going to stop fighting, which is why I think, why I argue that we, we shouldn't stop helping them. Absolutely. Uh, I think we, we have to. But I just wish we'd get our, the weapons there in a timely fashion. You have high marks. You want Patriots. You got them both. First we said no. Now we have 16s. First we said no. Now eventually is yes. No tanks. We're going to send you tanks. I mean, that to me is not leadership. Get them what they need and then see where the chips fall. I'm all for avoiding World War III. But remember, we did not invade another country. They did. We're just supporting the guys who are on the right side of this. Uh, Josh, continue to do your great work. Thanks so much. Thank you. Josh Rogan, Washington Post, uh, 1-866-408-7669. I know you have a lot to say over the weekend, so say it here next. Expanding your knowledge base, it's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, we're back, 1-866-408-7669. We'll take some calls next hour, too. And also, you can write me at briankillme.com. Julie, listen on FM News Talk 97.1 in St. Louis. Hey, Julie. Hey there, Brian. Hey, I know our country is in flames right now, but the story that I think is the most important one that is not getting enough attention is that Obama and Biden both knew that Hillary's plan was all a lie, and they let us get drugged through the Russia hoax for years, they sat quiet during the Mueller investigation, they let it play out, they weaponized the FBI, and they're not paying for it. And most people don't even know about it or appreciate it. we got to keep saying it. I think it's important. you got to read that Durham report and the Horowitz uh, IG report it will certainly help. You know, it does show you he was briefed at the last minute. But I, I think on some level, Obama was probably befuddled. Are you kidding me? Are you doing you know, doing this? But John Brennan briefed him. The vice president knew about it too. He didn't stop it. But I will say this: I don't think any, I don't think he was involved in it. Do you agree? I, I don't know, but he should have stopped it. He knew about it. He probably was detached and removed from it. But just being aware of something so sinister is disgusting. Look where we are. Every time I post on Twitter, 
all I get back from leftists is ru- still Russia and pe- that people, everyone's an agent of Russia. <laughs> like it has so taken hold. People's minds are, I think, permanently warped over it. And I don't think we are ever going to recover. And I hold Obama and Biden and Comey and you know, all the others fully accountable for the wreckage that our country has become. Yeah, the FBI also going after some Democratic causes like Black Lives Matter and others. Now they're saying, what's wrong with the FBI? Really? They should definitely not get that new building, I'll tell you that. radio show like no other it's brian kilmeade it's not normal for the president of the united states children and grandchildren and in-laws and nieces and nephews to receive wires from foreign nationals that's what we've proven and we proved that this happened while joe biden was vice president of the united states that had never before been reported and the media tried to not report on it but the american people are keeping up with what we're doing. And the American people do not want to see public corruption. They expect Congress to investigate public corruption. That's what the Republicans on the House Oversight Committee are doing. And now I think you're seeing more and more mainstream media outlets start recognizing the fact that the American people are keeping up with this and Joe Biden needs to answer questions and he needs to do it now. So people kept saying, well, James Cuomo, where's the proof? Where's the proof? Well, he's trying to tell you 20 shell companies and $10 million, and I just now got the bank records, and I wanted to expose that to you. Well, what does Joe Biden know? Well, you never would put Joe Biden, uh, his name on a check, evidently. They were told, and you see it in the emails, don't ever bring up the big guy, Joe Biden. Don't ever bring up the principal of the whole thing. Why? What were they trading on? They were trading on Joe Biden's influence, not Hunter Biden's great legal bind. You know, not the great the the great algebra grades from their grandchildren in high school. What were they trading on? So you've heard that, and we talked about that last week. But this really caught my attention. Jim Garrity, who wrote a column of the Washington Post, he writes for the National Review, senior political correspondent. Here's his headline, and his headline I think tells uh, uh, tells the story. Um, the headline says. Biden's family's financial gain through though questioned through questionable sources don't pretend it doesn't matter. Wow. So he's not saying Biden arrest him, but he's saying let's think about this. The FBI's delay in producing a single unclassified record is unacceptable, James Comer writes. The information provided by the whistleblower raises concerns that then-Vice President Biden allegedly engaged in a bribery scheme with a foreign national. The FBI must provide the record to Congress without further delay. The American people demand the truth and accountability. Okay, so what James Comer says, the whistleblower came forward and says, I I have proof that Joe Biden demanded a bribe for this execution of a policy when he was vice president. The FBI says, well, you have the report. He's like, well, those are, I think he calls them 302s. Those were unverified. Well, I'd like to see him anyway. They said no. Well, Kevin McCarthy picked up the phone and talked to on Comer's behalf and said, okay, we're going to get it. So Ken McCarthy feels good they're going to get it. Then comes this column about the Washington Post. He said, no doubt the Oversight Committee led by James Comer has its own preconceived narrative that Joe Biden is on the take from all kinds of characters, shady characters. An indictment of bribery or or corruption would require proof at some point while in office 
that Biden acted as influenced the U.S. government policy decision to benefit his own companies. And the House Oversight Committee so far does not have that proof. Yet, we're still left with a a motley collection of odd, unsavory figures sending a lot of money through a lot of companies to a lot of members of the Biden family with little to no explanation. Comer contends that bank records confirm that $10 million in payments through 20 businesses, mostly limited liability companies, to the president's son, Hunter Biden. The president's brother, James Biden, James's wife, Sarah Jones Biden, Haley Biden, widow of Bo Biden, son Bo, who died in 2015, Hunter's ex, Hunter's current wife, Melissa Cohen, and three children of the president's, all getting money. So what goods or services, Jim Garrity asked in the Washington Post, did all these Biden family members provide to these companies? It would lead anybody to believe that, of course, it's Joe Biden influence. They go on. Why did Gabriel Popovicio, a businessman convicted of bribery in Romania and relatedly, invest- and, be- and relatedly investigated by British authorities, pay as much as $1 million that ended up in the Biden family accounts? Does anyone believe the Chinese energy tycoon Ya Jiaming in 2017 gave Hunter Biden a 2.8 carat diamond estimated to be worth $80,000 as a gift out of pure, uh, out of pure goodness of his heart? Ye disappeared from public view in 2018 amid a Chinese corruption crackdown. So we ask you what the Washington Post is now asking you in editorial. We don't have Joe Biden getting a bribe and then delivering a foreign policy. But man, does this look terrible? And shouldn't voters know about this? And don't say it's let's condemn Joe Biden. Let's go investigate a crime until we find one. There is a crime here and they're investigating to get to the bottom of it. And the president continuing to say this, and she go, he goes on, the Biden family's unspecified gigs in foreign companies appear never to have developed a limited principle while he was vice president. Now in the White House, variations of Biden's reflective, my son has nothing, nothing wrong response, isn't going to cut at it at this time. Comer promises more, and he's taking direct aim at not all, not all plausible excuse from the president is entirely disconnected from the financial arrangements of his family members. These walls are closing. You may choose not to read the Washington Post one day or this column any day, but what what do you dispute in that in any of these statements? Bill, listen on WABC on Long Island. Hey, Bill. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind, Brian? You know, I was kind of wondering. You know, I'm a retired detective from the city. Why haven't they released the toxicology report I know. on the person that was killed on the subway? You know, this seems kind of dishonest by the DA not to release that. And I believe that there is a, a possible grand jury convening uh, meeting today to uh, there is the fate of the Marine. There so, is. I'm and just, I would love to know, too. It's like, for example... I've never choked somebody out, but I've I've gone to so I've did the first five UFCs, and the only way to win is to be knocked out or choked out. And what happens is, you know, when the guy's getting choked out, and whatever, I guess he was getting punched, and if somebody's jumped up and grabbed his arms, because he clearly was a threat to more than just Danny Penny. Don't you agree, Brian? You also got to remember that these people that are high as kites are strong as hell. You need, you know. Takes more than one person to hold someone down. Right, and this guy's a big guy, and he's not looking. He doesn't have a gun. He doesn't have a knife. 
He's looking to he's looking to suppress the guy. He's looking to hold him down. He's not looking to beat his head in. It's not as if he squared off on him and says, "Hey, let all hell break loose. I'm gonna you know I'm gonna I'm gonna beat you up." What he said is, "I'm gonna grab you until somebody comes." And as usual, nobody comes in these subways. Did you see what happened over the weekend? A woman just standing on the platform from behind was slammed into a train head first. The train had stopped. But according to the lawyer of the victim, they wished that instead of uh, Danny Penny locking him up, someone on the train would have said, a subway said, is anything wrong? Can I help you? Now, you're, you're a cop. Is that going to help? Would that have helped the civilian said, is there anything wrong? Can I help you? You, you know, you know, it's sad is it, it takes a while for police to respond to an incident. Uh, and at one time we used to be proactive uh, during the Giuliani administration where we would, you know, go in and take care of situations before they happen. You know, clean up the streets, clean up uh, yeah. quality of life issues. But that's not happening nowadays. And the subways are a mess because they're letting all the homeless and all the people with uh, mental issues uh, live in the subways, and it's actually hurting the civilians that are riding the subways. Uh, no question. So Jordan Neely, um, so uh, Jordan Neely, uh, I guess family member said this. Well, here's what Danny Danny Penny said on Sunday. He said this had nothing to do with race. I judge a person by their character. I'm not a white supremacist. I mean, it's a little bit comical. Everybody who's ever met me will tell you I love all people. I love all cultures. You can tell me about my past and my travels and adventures around the world. I was actually planning a, uh, a road trip to Africa before all this happened. So the family's not buying it. They want him sued, and they, they want him in jail. And they said if we don't put him in jail, other people will be doing the same thing. Really defending ourselves? I mean, that's the main thing. You want to arm schools. I feel terrible, these school shootings. Awful. But the only way to stop it is to harden the target. The only way to stop these lunatics from going down trying to abuse people is to let them know there's a bunch of people who are going to fight back, right? Yep, you're right. And you know what? I mean, it's, it has to come to a point now where Democrats got to stop this racism where because we're not racist people. Uh, you know, people that are Republicans aren't racist. We are actually a diverse diverse group of, of uh, races that make up the Republican Party. And I'm tired of the Democrats pushing the race race issue when it isn't a race issue. It's more of a mental health issue. And, that, and if you look, that Marine helped that guy afterwards to try to make sure that he was breathing. You know, he didn't know that the guy wasn't breathing and that he was uh, actually either dying yeah. from a cardiac arrest or not. But, you know, it's up to the ME to release the toxicology report. Find out what he's on. Who knows? Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Bill. Bill, listen on WABC. When we come back, Colton Dixon joined us. Uh, Christian music artist extraordinaire. Uh, made his, uh, made his uh, national debut on, on um, American Idol. This is the Brian Kill Me Show. Don't move. Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at briankillmeadshow.com. Every episode, exclusive interviews, on demand. More of Kill Me coming up. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. You will be my, 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 my life.
Yes, it is, uh, that's the singing, and that's the music of Colton Dixon, Christian music artist. Now standing one at that. He's got a new album called Canvas. That song is called uh, My Light. Colton, great to see you. Man, great to see you too, man. I know you start on Sunday on Fox & Friends. You had an extra day, so thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for working us in, man. Really appreciate it. No problem. So, t- so your new project is, uh, first off, tell me about that song. Yeah, My Light. Um, man, we had so much fun recording this song. We just wanted to go full church <laughs> on this song. Right. Had a lot of fun. Uh, simple reminder that no matter how dark it gets, that uh, God always, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, God always seems to illuminate the path that I need to take, and I'm really grateful for that. So uh, My Light is kind of just that thing, whoever it is for you, um, that person that will just light up the way um, bring a beautiful moment into your life. Uh, that's what this song's all about. So were you going to church young? Was, was, was it's always a part of your life, or that's something later in life? Yeah, I uh, grew up going to church, but I think in everyone's life, faith uh, needs to become your own in some form or fashion and um, or not. And, and for me, that moment was uh, in my early teens. Um, I just started to see that, hey, like God is actually coming through for me on a you know, continual basis. And, and to this day, he hasn't let me down. So, so did you have the, the, when did you blend the, the Christianity with the music? Were you a musician separate from Christian? And then you said, let's blend this. Yeah. I feel like faith is something that I've always, uh, sang about. Um, it just felt like the natural thing to sing about for me, even, even, uh, in my younger years. Um, but then doing a show like American Idol, um, I, we were talking earlier, you're obviously not choosing songs from the hymnal, right? So um, right. I had to adapt and, and learn even some new styles of music that I had never listened to. And uh, But I'm so grateful. Um, really grew me musically a lot. What year were you in? It was 2012, season 11. Okay, season so, 11. Who were the judges? It was Jennifer Lopez, Randy Jackson was still there, and Steven Tyler. Yeah. So what was it, how hands-on are they? You know, they were really sweet. Um, they gave me some really great feedback. When you when um, you weren't on the air? Yeah, even when we weren't on the air. Um, but there there was still this um, this barrier between contestants and, and judges, and probably for good reason. Um, but they were very sweet, great to work with. Really appreciated them. Well, how did you what developed in your music ability or your your music acumen after that? Yeah, I mean. Idol is crash course music industry, business, um, how to work a camera, how to do an interview, you know, all the things that you wouldn't think about musically. Um, so I really appreciated that. But even genres and, and uh, singing, how to sing and how to arrange a song and all of these things came out of going through something like American Idol. So, I mean, talent is just like almost in stand-up. It's good to have the foundation, but if you're not going to sure. work, if you're not going to grow, if you're not coachable, you're just going to be a guy with a lot of talent or a woman with a lot of talent that doesn't get there. That's exactly right. Yeah, talent will only take you so far, um, but you got to put in the work too. Right. Uh, let's talk about you and your life. You're only 31. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been married? A little over seven years, actually. Wow. Yeah. Got started early. Yeah, it did start early. Yeah. Right. And I guess that was, were you successful yet? We, uh, my wife and I met just after I had come off of American Idol. She had no idea who I was, which was awesome. Um, it was right. a great conversation with her in the beginning. Um, we dated for almost four years and then got married when I was 24. By the way, uh, Colton Dixon, our guest, uh, he's now in studio for a few more minutes. Colton, talk about what happened. You had twins. Yeah, we did. But what happened perilous along the way? Yeah, um, we had twins in 2020. So what a crazy year for multiple reasons, but... Um, pregnancy was actually amazing. My wife did a great job, um, but she was in labor for a long time. So we had to punt and go to a C-section 
And as that's how she referred to it, punting. Punt, yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> she that's did. We had punt. Um, yeah. Yeah, we were on fourth down for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, we punted, went to C-section, and uh, the first one out um, had already started that birthing process, little Dior. Um, and so her body didn't know how to handle being in the canal for so long. So her body shut down. So born, um, not breathing. Not breathing, no pulse. Very scary. Not the way you want to meet your kids for the first time. Um, little Athens came out kicking and screaming. So we, we knew she was good, um, but they were working on uh, Dior next to us in the operating room um, as they took out Athens, um, giving her CPR, hooking her up to all the things. And, uh, man, I'm again, I'm thankful for growing up in church and, and having this lifeline that we do. So we started to pray. And whether God touched her directly or worked through the doctors and nurses, she came back to life and uh, have never had an issue since. Um, she spent about a week in the NICU just to monitor and make sure things were good. And right. they were. And everything's okay now? Everything's awesome. We're so thankful. Yeah. Wow. So now you're coming off the road, right? Yeah. We, we just did a big tour called the Build a Boat Tour, which was absolutely amazing. Um, thank Is you, guys. Is that your hit song? Yeah. One um, of you many. Biggest, biggest song of our career so far, and we're so grateful. But um, just came off of that tour. Um, celebrated, you know, right out here on the square yesterday uh, yeah. with Fox and Friends. Did you get and, a good response? Man, it was a blast. Yeah, yeah a lot of people came out and That's had a awesome. good time. Yeah. So here, Colton, here's the thing about my your industry just drives me crazy. Is that you got the yacht, you got <laughs> the writers, <laughs> yeah. you got the musicians. Yeah. You guys are the irreplaceable part of this. Sure. Can't do anything without it. I know yeah. you need managers. I know, but you make so little on the downloads. Whole mm. albums aren't the same. Obviously, there's no Sam Goody where you're going to buy albums, sure. comparing them like you used to. Yeah, that's so true. So is the industry going to catch up Man, I, they're the trying. artists and writers? Um, man, there, there are a lot of people fighting. Um, you know, There's a podcast called And the Writer Is, and, and the people behind that podcast are really fighting and advocating for songwriters and producers and, and even the artists. Because you get shares. one cent or something like that? It's per, a fraction of a cent, fraction per, of a cent. Uh, per stream on a Spotify or Apple Music. Which means like if that. you don't do live shows, how do you make money? Yeah, it's merch and live shows. That's really where artists make their money. Um, radio is also helps a lot yeah. um, with you know radio play and things like that with royalties. But still, um, the I feel like the gap is getting better. And better, but it's hard to keep up with where we are now because you're right. CD sales aren't as big of a thing. See, I, I understand struggling artists as part of the process. Everybody yeah. understands it. Sure. Got it. Actors, uh, they know it. The payoff's great. Sure. Know what? The outcome's not guaranteed, but man, you got to love it. Yeah. But when you emerge like you have emerged and they're still not paying you, there's a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I feel like um, the ability to make music is uh, more accessible now than ever. Um, so, yeah, you really have to love love it. Colton Dixon, thanks so much. Thank you Appreciate so it. much. And don't forget about Canvas. Download it now. In fact, you're singing us out. I hope you don't mind. I don't mind at all. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. So glad you're here. Gary Sinise, the outstanding actor who does more for the military than anybody I know uh, that doesn't wear the uniform, will be joining us. He's going to be hosting the Memorial Day event uh, this weekend on PBS. And Daryl Johnson, one of the finest running backs Dallas Cowboys have had. Now he's an executive with the USFL. Uh, where he is, you know, he won three Super Bowls, but he's the executive vice president of football operations, uh, one of the fast-growing leagues. Uh, we'll talk about that 
as well as what's happening in the Football League and the growth of sports betting in this country. Uh, of course, over the weekend, it was really about the PGA Championships, and that was pretty amazing what went on, and we'll go over that. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There's kind of a competition on the Hill to see who can be tougher on China. But I think by and large, there is very broad bipartisan support for what the U.S. is doing for Ukrainians. And I think it's all also uh, in terms of China. Yep, there you go. China, Russia, Ukraine, three nations on top of the mind of the G7, the impact of the conference, the overreaction from our enemies and what Zelensky's dramatic appearance means for Ukraine's fortunes. Number two. Would you be blameless in a default situation? On the merits, based on what I've offered, I would be blameless. On the politics of it, no one will be blameless. <laughs> yes, it's all about politics. Debt ceiling, deadline looms. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy meeting. At some point, maybe even now, why I believe Joe already lost. Number one. I have not spoken to a, a single Senate colleague that's not excited and or at least helpful in encouraging me to go forward with my message. We do need more positivity in the conversation that we do need an optimistic messenger. Big, biggest week yet for the GOP is presidential pushes. Two more high-profile heavyweights are poised to announce they are running. Senator Tim Scott and later this week, Governor Ron DeSantis. What the polls say their chances are and why is everyone, especially Trump, attacking Ron DeSantis? Just let me remind you also, uh, we got the podcast. So if you ever can hear the show live, and I hope you do, BrianKillmeShow.com. You get our podcast wherever you get podcasts. So I'm, I'm excited. I, if you got to know Tim Scott, I'm excited for him. Very smart guy. He's a very learned. He was very successful in the insurance business first. Uh, then, of course, he's got the uh, in Congress. Then he goes to then he goes to Congress. Then he goes to the Senate. And from the Senate, he became a huge impact player. Uh, police reform put it forward. He was definitely tight with President Trump. Was very much a part of a lot of his issues, including the enterprise zone, the empowerment zone that he put together, getting business involved with working class or or um, um, I guess uh, impoverished communities. He's doing a great job. So Tim Scott will say, I'm going to run for president now. Now, he's got $22 million in the bank. It's the largest It's the, the largest support of anybody in the field, including, including Ron DeSantis. And he's got a super PAC with $13 million in it. About his competence, nobody doubts it. Here's Tim Scott on why he's getting in. Cut one. I have not spoken to a, a single Senate colleague that's not excited and or at least helpful in encouraging me to go forward with my message. Those, uh, that's, that's one of the blessings. Serve with really good people who appreciate your message, who actually buy into the concept that we do need more positivity in the conversation, that we do need an optimistic messenger who understands and have lived the American dream. I find that that's actually coming across very well with my colleagues. And frankly, having spent 10 years with a number of them, that has also been an important part. Of and we keep in mind, I know he's in single digits. I know Nikki Haley's in single digits. You know how quick that changes? And that's what I tried to do on One Nation on Saturday, just to tell you Howard Dean was way in front and ended up being John Kerry's nomination. John McCain was nowhere, and he gave George W. Bush a run for his money. And, in fact, they've got extremely heated debates. Things changed when it became a one-on-one event. Now, nobody thought Donald Trump would even last, but the minute he wasn't even in yet at this point, when he got in, he catapulted to number one. Then after a few debates, he became number one, and he held it there for the longest time. And everybody said, from Jeb Bush on down, who I really like, Jeb Bush, 
But he said Donald, Donald Trump will not get the nomination. He got the nomination. Donald Trump will not be president. He became president. So if you ask me, Donald Trump have a chance? Yeah, I think he has more of a chance now than he had in 2016, and he won in 2016. Now, there's this big anti-Trump push, and I understand it. After January 6th, I get it, of refusing to admit he lost in some of the uh, some of the theories that were not substantiated. I think he lost more support after losing the 2020 election than he ever had even during the pandemic. But he's battled back through all the legal travails, through all the turmoil, through all the investigations. He is now up in front. Now, I'm just looking at the polls. The Harvard-Havers poll right now has Trump up with 58% of the Republican vote, Ron DeSantis second with 16. But if you talk to Governor Sununu, if you talk to Governor Christie, if you talk to people like Bill Cassidy, Trump can't win. Cut seven. I don't think Trump can win a general election, but that's a nice way for him to diss people like uh, Tim Scott, who's a pretty formidable candidate. So you just have to take this as a competitor trying to diss others. On the other hand, the last election cycle, we saw that in all the swing states, almost all, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Arizona, the candidates for Senate that Trump endorsed all lost. If you had taken the votes that went to other Republicans and put them together, those Republicans would have won. So I think the president's kind of high-profile endorsement of those candidates actually hurt those candidates, uh, at least in the general election. So if passed his prologue, that means President Trump is going to have a hard time in those swing states, which means that he cannot win a general election. We'll see what happens. Uh, He's got to win those people over. And the greatest calling card for President Trump is Joe Biden. I mean, if you look at him overseas at the G7, do you really feel he's reassured? Now, people at home are always like, oh, Donald Trump is threatening our allies. He's doing... No, what he does is he's constantly negotiating. He has his eye on our, on our enemies or our challengers, China, and he's going to push everybody else to do as much as possible in order to make America, who is the leader of all these alliances, more powerful. That's the way he approaches things. But the way he got out turned a lot of people off, and the, some of the things he did when he was in office well, hard to justify. But now that it comes out in the Durham report, and take some time to read it. Don't let anyone tell you what's in it. It just shows Hillary Clinton had this plot. It was known by John Brennan and all these other people, but they didn't care. They pushed it forward even after he won. They kept it going, Comey on down, and they never stopped it. The Mueller report is launched. It takes two and a half years and $30 million, and it definitely hurt the president. And that comes out. The IG report comes out. Then you see the economy, the lingering inflation that continues. You see what's going on with Ukraine. You see the way we left Afghanistan. You see the mess in the Middle East more than ever. You say, wait a second, what is actually better? And that's why Byron Donald says Trump's my guy. Cut three. To me, it's not really about Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis. It's about what America needs. And that's where I've been really since day one. We, I talked a little bit about foreign policy in the last block. Mm-hmm. We have a situation right now where Russia is on the move and China is on the move. We need somebody who can step in day one, look at Vladimir Putin, look at Xi Jinping and say, okay, enough. I'm back. We're going to get everything in you don't order think the way it was has that ability. I think it's going to take him time. I think there's only one person who has that ability right now, and it's Donald Trump. And for all the mm-hmm. naysayers who would say, oh, he's unpredictable, oh, we don't know what he's going to do, mm-hmm. let's be very clear. When he was president of the United States, the world was in a much safer place. Nobody can say that the world is safer now than when it was when he was president. Right. And I, I think Byron Donalds, by the way, if I was to say I put money on any politician uh, for a bright future, it would be Byron Donalds. This guy is unbelievably competent. I watch him on CNN. 
I watched him on Meet the Press. He will go into any situation. He doesn't care. He's so confident and strong on so many issues. He's not going to get outspoken. He'll listen. He'll respond. He he feels very comfortable in so-called hostile territory, uh, vastly outnumbered. And you saw that he got the respect from Chuck Todd. He got it yesterday. I'm telling you. I watch every Sunday show almost every weekend. And it's very rare for someone to get this type of respect that he got. And I think it's because they're afraid of the buzzsaw. If you throw something out there that's hyperbole, not backed up by facts, he's going to take you out. Now, Dan Balls, the Washington Post, a left editorial, got it. Just to offer some analysis in the Washington Post, I thought was worth sharing with you. He actually hopped on television. And the one thing is, I think Governor DeSantis, he's been taking a lot of hits, but I think people are way overreacting to poll numbers dropping early. It's like spring training and going, you know, hitting 120, and people say, what's wrong with him? doesn't matter. It's spring training. He's not in the games. The games don't count yet. Now they count. If you saw him last weekend, not this past weekend, the weekend before that, New Hampshire and Iowa, the guy looked great. Listen to his speeches. You see him interacting with people. People have lowered the bar because everyone keeps saying that Ron DeSantis is not good one-on-one now. When he goes and speaks to people, they're like, look, look how much better he's gotten. It's a good theory. All right, when we come back, uh, and I'm going to play Dan Balls uh, a little bit next, but when we come back, uh, Gary Sinise joins us. Gary Sinise is going to be hosting his Memorial Day uh, concert. He's going to be promoting that, and he's going to be doing that on PBS this weekend. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Daryl Johnson joins us now. He's Executive Vice President, USFL. Um, welcome back. I'm sorry. Yeah, Daryl Johnson's coming up in about 10 minutes. Uh, he's going to be talking about what happened with the USFL. Also, go over some what's happening with the golf. Uh, joining us now is, uh, is Gary Sinise. Uh, he's a great friend of the show, and you also know he's an Emmy Award-winning actor and veteran advocate, author of New York Times bestseller, Grateful American, and founder of the Gary Sinise Foundation. And he'll be hosting the annual Memorial Day concert. He'll be broadcasting from the West Lawn of the U.S. Capitol on PBS Nationwide. It'll be Sunday on the 28th at 8 o'clock. Gary, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. Good to talk to you. So, uh, Gary, I know you love doing this every year, and you never stop giving to the, the men and women uh, who serve overseas. Uh, what has it been like now that we're not in the middle of a hot war? Part, uh, uh, well, uh, look, there are sacrifices that have been made, uh, you know, over the course of our history that uh, deserve to be recognized and honored, and that's what Memorial Day is all about. You know, for so many, it's it can be you know a bar, barbecue and a day off and that kind of thing. But really, the the purpose is very profound and very uh, important to our country. And so we recognize that on PBS every year. Uh, this is our 34th year. I've been involved in it now since 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been co-hosting with Joe Montana. It's a great way recognize the sacrifices that have been made and i i i just uh once i did it in 2005 i got i got hooked and i just wanted to come back every year 
I know, and I know you definitely appreciate it there. And I do remember it started after uh, the Civil War that we began to recognize those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. I was actually in Saratoga over the weekend, the Battle of Saratoga. There's a cemetery sitting right there of those who fought the pivotal, uh, the pivotal battle in our initial war. If we don't win that battle, the French don't come in, and we probably don't win. So there's so many different times in American history. When you have these things happen, the whole country galvanizes around the mission and the country. Do you do you think we're close to getting back to that, or are we very far away from that? Well, I know, for, you know, I can speak for myself. I, I have a full-time foundation that really puts a focus on, on supporting the men and women who serve our country and our first responders. And in in that community, I find there are... You know, a lot of a lot of great Americans that really care about our defenders and want to do everything they can to support them. We have tons of, you know, thousands and thousands of donors at the Gary Sinise Foundation. And why did they donate to a foundation like mine that's there to serve our defenders? Well, because they care about our, our defenders and they want they want to do something to provide services and to help uh, show their appreciation and support. And there are thousands and thousands of nonprofits out there that do this. Uh, This National Memorial Day concert on PBS each year is a a way for the nation to come together uh, to recognize these sacrifices. Uh, I I wish, you know, we could get the word out to every single American to go to to tune into PBS at 8 o'clock on May 28th. Because each and every year we highlight uh, very m- important stories. This year is the the you know rec- we're going to recognize the 50th anniversary of the end of combat operations in Vietnam. Uh, 1973 combat operations ended there, and our POWs came home. And uh, we're going to feature 11 POWs on the show that night. Uh, going to uh, kind of highlight one of the stories of uh, Carlisle Smitty Harris, who was a, uh, a Vietnam POW in a prison at Hanoi Hilton for eight years, wow. uh, you know, and his wife, Louise, uh, enduring that long, torturous eight years while he was in prison in Vietnam. Uh, there are so many... Uh, POWs uh, that are still alive today, and we're going to recognize them for what they did all those years ago. Um, each year, there's just something very special uh, in the show, and I encourage people to tune in. I also know that you guys are you're co, uh, co-producing or, or at least presenting uh, Last Out, LG of a Green Beret with Scott Mann, correct? Uh, yes, actually, my last out was written by Lieutenant Colonel retired Scott Mann. He served in Afghanistan and wrote the, wrote a play about his experiences, and it's it's nearly an all veteran cast. And I found out about it, met Scott, and my foundation is actually sponsoring sponsoring a tour. We have uh, next performances. We opened in San Diego this month. Next month we're in uh, Phoenix. So you can go to GarySiniseFoundation.org, uh, look up Last Out and the tour. We're we're hitting six, five or six more cities, and also on uh, May 26th, you can go to GarySiniseFoundation.org and on May 26th at Constitution Hall, we're going to have a special tribute to our Vietnam veterans. My band's going to play. Uh, Joe Montaigne is uh, our master of ceremonies. 
We have uh, Sammy Davis, who's a Medal of Honor recipient, Vietnam veteran. He's going to speak. So it's going to be a great night on May 26th. And then, of course, I'm back on stage May 28th in front of the Capitol with Joe Montana for the National Memorial Day concert. Right. Uh, Gary, I mean, it's it's amazing. Do you find this, is there anything more satisfying than doing what you're doing? Could you describe the feeling and, and, the, and the respect that people have for you when you're giving so much of your time? Well, I, I just, you know, um, I got involved with uh, supporting veterans years and years ago. I have veterans in my own family and I just uh, got very involved way back when. It's, in fact, it's the Vietnam veterans uh, in my family that really uh, awakened me to, to military service, and, and I wanted to give back to them. And, and so I started back in the 80s so supporting Vietnam veterans in, in different ways. And I found, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I, it made me feel good to, to try to do something for them. And then after September 11th, uh, when we started deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan, I, ju- I just wanted to do everything possible to to make sure that what happened to our Vietnam veterans when they came home all those years ago and the, the nation that had kind of turned its back on them, I wanted to do everything to prevent that yeah. from happening to our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And, and they do have the respect. We just got to get the recruiting up. Uh, and shows like yours on May 28th at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock Central, will help do that. It's on PBS. Uh, it's promoting uh, you know, the Memorial Day concert. At Gary Sinise is to follow him and for his foundation, at Gary Sinise Found. Gary, thanks so much. Always great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Brian. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I am so happy to be back in North Charleston, South Carolina. And I can't tell you how much I mean this in the depths of my heart. I'm so proud to be an American. And that is Tim Scott still giving a speech now. He's officially in the race, historic time. African-American with a legitimate shot at making a difference. And I think, you know, being on some part of the ticket, first or second, this thing's got to play out. President Trump is winning all by a lot. And I think uh, DeSantis solid second. And the Trump camp came out and said, yeah, Tim Scott's going to really give a run to the second place. So it's uh, Donald Trump's uh, saying that Tim Scott's going to be able to do that. Um, but let's change gears. We'll monitor that. And we know that uh, Santa's getting in on Thursday. But over the weekend, Daryl Johnston and his uh, USFL uh, in year two had a full week of schedules. It was week six. Instead of talking to him with the preview on Friday, we thought we'd recap on Monday. So Daryl, as executive vice president of football operations over the USFL, former NFL running back, three-time Super Bowl champ, welcome back. How have you been? I've been good. How about you? You had to travel a little this weekend, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that we're getting better at here in year two is the travel component, which was not a part of year one. So uh, we've got the bus thing figured out pretty well. We're, we're pretty good there when we go from south to south in the hub. But when we have to go from south to north or north to south and we have to fly, um, sometimes you have to let things out of your control. 
and just roll with the punches. Um, but it was a pretty clean travel weekend for us in Birmingham. Um, so all good there. So it was, uh, it was, it was good to get up to Michigan, see some friends from last season in year one and be able to spend the weekend with them and watch some good football. All right. So we have the showboats beating the Maulers 22, nothing stallions over the Panthers, 27, uh, 13 stars beating the breakers, 16, 10 gamblers over the Generals, 16, 10, but uh, the, the big story, there was also a fight on the sidelines. Yes, yes. It's one of the things that we've tried to to kind of re- rein in a little bit. And Mike Pereira and I have been working on this now for about three weeks. Um, we started off with a message to the head coaches, um, you know, to, to bring the integrity of the game back into play. You know, get that at the forefront of a lot of the messaging you're having with your players during the course of the week. Respect for your teammates, respect for your opponents, respect for the game overall in general. And we didn't get the results we wanted, so then we went directly to the players uh, two weeks ago. And, you know, we told them about a new system we were going to have in place. We're going to evaluate every single play, whether there's a flag thrown on it or not, that involves taunting, unsportsmanlike conduct, or unnecessary roughness. And we still haven't gotten through to them. And so this past weekend, it, it actually escalated, Brian. And, and we just – we don't understand. We know we know as condensed as our standings are in each division and the importance of every game now that we're in the second half. And we tell our guys all the time, listen, football is an emotional game, but you've got to be able to manage your emotions during the course of the game. And we're just not seeing that from certain individuals. And we've got several repeat offenders that we're going to have to take a hard stance on this week. Yeah. So uh, here you go. So that's what one thing is good, though. That shows how much they care. The worst thing is watching a professional sport, and we've been there. And you look and you go, these guys don't even care. You know, guys playing yeah. out the street. I mean, you, you, people are playing for their livelihoods a shot, uh, maybe getting to the NFL or getting a contract for next year. So uh, we got the Stallions at four and two, the Breakers at four and two, the Stars at three and three, uh, Pittsburgh at two and four. Uh, then the Gamblers and Showboats, and then Michigan and uh, Michigan and New Jersey at two and four. So we'll see how that plays out. Now ne- this year you're in how many different locations? Four. Four different locations. Yes. So, and what's the goal for next year? How many are going to be in their in their cities? You think? It, it, the overall plan is at some point to have every team into their home market. Now what what that time frame is, we're not exactly sure because we want to make sure we do it in the way we did it from year one to year two. We want to make sure. It's something that's achievable. It's something that's sustainable, um, that we've taken the time and we've done our due diligence and who are the correct partners to start this venture with. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed about how we've rolled this out when we moved into the other three hubs this year is, is getting to know the communities, finding out what the issues are there that we can align ourselves with, with the community and, and some of the charitable ventures that they're doing. Um, so it, it's, it's building that relationship with the city or with the community that we're hoping to go to long before we even start to bring our teams there. And, and we're in the process of doing a lot of that, that homework right now in several markets. And, and hopefully sometime soon we'll be able to, uh, to make an announcement about where we're going to expand for year three. But when we do that, it will be done in a very calculated way that gives us the best opportunity to have success over the long period of time. Uh, we don't want to move too quickly we understand, um, listening to our fans, you know, some of the things that that uh, they were, they want us to get better at, but we have to do that in a way where it gives us long-term success. So we've got to be smart about that. 
So the other thing that happened this weekend in the game, in the league you used to be in the NFL and a school that you used to go to, Syracuse, is uh, Grace Ad, the greatest athlete in the 20th century and one of the most impactful social activists ever is Jim Brown, passed away at the age of 87. Of course, he started Syracuse where you starred. What did you know about Jim Brown when you went to college, and did you ever have a chance to get to know him? I, I wouldn't say I got a chance to get to know him, but I had an opportunity to to meet him several times and, and very blessed to have that that opportunity. Um, I, I think when you talk about the, the greatest running back of all time, there, there's a number of guys that will be brought into that discussion, but I think the most consistent one will be Jim Brown. And, and I think because of just the level that he played at, the era he played at, and the time, um, you know, I'm always going to be a little bit biased. I think one of the greatest things that Emmett Smith did was Emmett Smith showed, you know, tremendous productivity over a long period of time. Jim Brown was, was unbelievable. Um, but it was just that those, that nine year career, um, you know, if he'd have been able to play longer, what would he have been able to do? So, uh, I think everybody watches old Jim Brown footage and just marbles at how physical he was yet how gifted he was as an athlete with breakaway speed and balance. And I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable to watch those old film clips. And then when I got to Syracuse and, and learned about the game of lacrosse and you hear about Jim Brown playing lacrosse and the reason that the, the, the men's game of lacrosse, you have to have the stick off your body. You can't cradle it to your chest is referred to as the Jim Brown rule. I mean, he would just, pick up the ball, cradle it to his chest, and go down the field. And there's nobody that's going to stop Jim Brown from going coast to coast to the net. Um, so that, that was one of the more you know entertaining things as lacrosse became a big sport for, for our son and daughter uh, growing up and learning about that sport. So uh, it just – it was really nice in Michigan before each game they pay tribute to Jim Brown, and I thought it was it was very well done and absolutely well-deserved on, on, on a weekend where we lost one of the greatest football players, if not the greatest football player of all time. Yeah, and you get the Carrier Dome. You walk up there, you see Floyd Little, you see Tim Green, and you see Jim Brown's picture uh, painting up there in the Carrier Dome. I don't know if it made it through the rehab. You guys refurbished it. But just knowing that he went there, also he played a role in recruiting if you had to get a good back, right? Yeah, and that was I, – I, I, I'm probably going to mix up the order, but I think it was it was Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, Floyd Little, and it, and it was the, the player prior that was encouraging and recruiting the next player to come. And, and unfortunately, with the passing of Ernie Davis, we never got to see – Jim Brown and Ernie Davis in the backfield together for the Cleveland Browns, which, you know, I, <laughs> that that's going to be a tough one, you know, to handle. But I, if, if you have not seen the movie, the express, I encourage everybody to go watch that movie because we talk about great athletes and great players, but when you watch the express, you get to see not only a great player, but a great man. And at our time at Syracuse, Ernie Davis was revered more than any other player. And you're talking about the Jim Browns and the Larry Zonkas and the John Mackeys, uh, the Floyd Littles. And, and it was, it was Ernie Davis. Ernie Davis was the one that was most revered and probably more who he was as a man um, than as he was as a football player. And number 44, I guess is the big seller in the bookstore. Absolutely. Absolutely. Used as a recruiting element. You know, when we were there, they had retired 44 uh, because all three of those gentlemen wore that uh, in consecutive seasons and passed it down. And then the number was not officially retired, but kind of put aside because it, w- it was such a special number. 
when you have those three guys wearing it, that as they started to, to bring it back, it was, a, it was a huge recruiting element. If you were going after a big recruit to come to Syracuse University, you could offer them the opportunity to wear 44. All right. Uh, so, Daryl Johnson, last uh, call. What, what about this weekend? What's coming up? You got Saturday and Sunday? Yes. Yeah, we, we've got uh, the Southern Hub is 4-2, is 4-2, four 4-2, and two, four and 3-3. Two, and two, and three and three. Um, so we've got Memphis and Houston together in their own hub. So we're intra-hub in the South, which we learned the first go-around is very challenging uh, because the guys may tolerate each other <laughs> and get along, uh, you know, you know, from a public perspective. But once we get into that game week where they're playing each other, all, all that goes away. So in Birmingham and in Memphis, we've got our intra-hub week, and we've got four and two Birmingham and four and two New Orleans. Um, you know, New Orleans has been struggling the last couple of weeks. They're on an 0 2 stretch here. The offense is really bogged down after really, you know, for the first month of the season, you know, leading passer, leading receiver, leading rusher. I mean, they were a juggernaut on the offensive side of the ball, uh, and they've lost that, that rhythm. Um, Birmingham up and down the last couple of weeks, kind of hard to figure out exactly where they are, uh, but it seems like they've righted the ship. Um, you know, a lot of the things when they struggle is within their control, penalties, turnovers, things that are uncharacteristic that we saw from the Stallions last year. And then Memphis started out 0-3, Houston started out 0-2, and now we've got four and two Houston at three and three Memphis. Memphis is playing very, very well defensively. Cole Kelly has really stabilized the quarterback position, um, has really given them some great leadership. But if, if we're looking at a dark horse in the South, I, I really think it's Houston. I, I, gotcha. I saw Ken Bahar early in the year and, and, and liked the way he was playing. He's back. Mark Thompson is a running back. They're good in both the offensive and defensive lines. They've gotten younger, faster, more athletic on the defensive side of the ball. They are playing really, really well right now. And, and we're just as compressed in the north, but it's just not the records. Philadelphia, a couple of weeks ago, we thought they may be dead in the water. They, they had a game where it was just, you know, Houston just ran right through them. And, and they, they did not look good just from, you know, kind of, it's like uh-huh. they broke their will. There, there was not the hustle. There was not uh, the discipline that was there. Well, now Philadelphia is right at the ship. They find themselves atop the North at three and three, and everybody else is at two and four. So we're very, very condensed. And, and one of the things that I think every coach in our league is preaching this week is we can't beat the opponent if we continue to beat ourselves. And that, that's one of the things that we've seen with some of the teams that are in a little bit of a rut right now, penalties, turnovers, things within your control that if you don't execute you know, perfectly, you're never going to have right. a chance to win. So uh, I think I think this is going to be a great weekend gotcha. for us because we, we really start to see if somebody's going to be able to kind of kind of pull out of that pack. Daryl Johnson, thanks so much. Best of luck. Always a pleasure, Brian. Take care. You got it. When we come back, uh, Tim Scott still announcing, finishing up his speech. What Donald Trump just put out on social media, kind of interesting about Tim Scott. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest-growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. We cannot have innocent people at risk. Police officers getting ambushed and attacked and seniors locked in their homes from the time the sun goes down until the sun comes up. Joe Biden and the radical left are attacking every single rung of the ladder that helped me climb. And that's why I'm announcing today that I'm running for president 
of the United States of America. Senator, uh, Senator Tim Scott makes it official. He is now in. The speech is still going on, and he looks pumped up. He's not wearing a jacket, wearing a blue shirt, packed crowd. Great scene. Oh, and he's got plenty of money. He's got a really good staff around him, and he got Senator John Thune announcing him, number two guy in the Senate, and he's got Mike Rounds, too. I'm sure there's other senators who jump aboard. So here's what Donald Trump said after. Good luck to Senator Tim Scott in entering the Republican race. It's rapidly loading up with lots of people, and Tim is a big step up from Ron D. Sanctimonious, who's totally unelectable. I got Opportunity Zones done with Tim, a big deal that has been highly successful. Good luck, Tim. So he's obviously, obviously he doesn't consider Tim Scott disloyal, but he considers Governor Ron DeSantis disloyal. Why is that? I mean, it makes you wonder if there's more to know. More to know. Invest in premium American whiskey as it ages. The older it gets, the better it gets. And the more valuable it gets. Go to caskdeeds.com. That's caskdeeds.com to learn more. Paid for by Spirits Capital Corporation. So the Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester, New York, was the site of the 2023 PGA Championship. Brooks Kepko won it after playing extremely well. Uh, at the Masters and almost winning it. Uh, this time he locked it up with the nine under par, got $3.1 million. Big news for the Live Tournament because he left with for big money to go to Live. He got his knee better. Now he's back to playing great. But the biggest story is club pro Michael Block would not go away. He was fantastic, even at a hole-in-one on a fly. Listen to him talk about his remarkable four-day adventure. The seven iron flighted his uh, pretty good wind into us. Uh, I, I was paired with Rory McIlroy, you know, one of one of my idols, and uh, I was doing okay. I just, you know, I was too over at that point. I was trying to get back to even par. I hit the seven. I couldn't see it go in the hole, and all of a sudden, Rory's walking away, and he turns around and he has his arms open, and he's going to give me a big hug. And I'm like, I couldn't figure out why he's giving me a hug if I just hit it close. I didn't think it went in the hole, but the crowd was going, you know, nuts. And he comes up and he goes, and Rory's like, it went in the hole. I'm just like, you got to be kidding me right now. I couldn't even believe it. You might have seen it on TV. I couldn't believe it that it actually yeah. went in the hole under that moment in time yeah it's very very cool <laughs> yeah that was pretty cool here's more from him that, that was dylan he just turned 18 uh he also works both my boys work there at the club uh they work outside service every sunday morning so they went there i didn't know there was a watch party going on there at o'neill's that was pretty darn cool and when i saw that video last night it definitely brought tears to my eyes and i've cried more uh in the last couple days than i've ever cried in my life so it's a very min- meaningful event. And maybe he'll be able to stick around, too. Great uh, story. Great thing. It's a real-life Tin Cup story that Kevin Costner played. So let's find out if there's even more to know by going to this story. 71% of adults think it's rude to come into the office when sick. More than one in four Americans believe they can still uh, will their sickness away, according to new research. A, toll of, uh, a poll of 2,000 people, Americans reveal that until they have cold sweats or chills, 48% say they could will it away. A fever, 46%, or green snot, 21%. There you go. Uh, despite all the telltale signs such as body aches or, ju- uh, or a cough, it takes Americans an average of two days of symptoms before admitting they are unwell. Do you come in? To, people usually say there's a badge of honor until the pandemic to come in sick. It's, I think every industry is so different, though, right? Like some industries, if you don't show up, it's not a big deal. And also it's the timing, like especially for us, right? If you wake up sick... We're coming on the air at 9 a.m., right? There's not a lot of time to, like, readjust. That's so true. So sometimes you got to just battle through. Next, best dramas of all time. Here are the top five. Vote at home. Number five, The West Wing. Never watched it. Number four, Game of Thrones. Never watched it. Number three, The Wire. Never watched it. Number two, Breaking Bad was great. And The Sopranos was fantastic. That's looked as the most gripping show ever. 
Do you think that's right? Um, the Sopranos was good, so it was Breaking Bad. Um, it sounds Mad Men. I loved Mad Men. I feel like that could have been up there too. Well, that's true. I didn't watch that. Uh, the iPhone will soon be able to replicate your voice after just 15 minutes of training. Is that good news or bad? It's a little scary. I think it's a little bad. Uh, hey, uh, thanks so much for listening. Keep it here. The Brian Kilmeade Show. BrianKilmeade.com. A great place to find out how to get the podcast. BrianKilmeadeShow.com is ways for, uh, great to get the podcast. BrianKilmeade.com. Those are my questions and comments. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.